Everybody dies, don't they? All Hallows by Walter de la Mer And because time in itself can receive no alteration, the hallowing must consist in the shape or countenance which we put upon the affairs that are incident in these days. Richard Hooker It was about half past three on an August afternoon when I found myself for the first time looking down upon all hallows. And at glimpse of it, fatigue and vexation passed away. I stood at gaze, as the old phrase goes, like the two children of Israel sent in to spy out the promised land. How often the imagined transcends the real. Not so all hallows. Having at last reached the end of my journey, flies, dust, heat, wind, having at last come limping out upon the green sea bluff beneath which lay its walls. I confess, the actuality excelled my feeble dreams of it. What most astonished me, perhaps, was the sense not so much of its age, its austerity, or even its solitude, but its air of abandonment. It lay couched there as if hiding in its narrow sea bay, not a sound was in the air, and not a jackdaw clapped its wings among its turrets. No other roof, and not even a chimney was in sight, only the dark blue arch of the sky, the narrow snow line of the ebbing tide, and that gaunt coast, fading away into the haze of a west over which were already gathering the veils of sunset. We had met then at an appropriate hour and season, and yet... I wonder, for it was certainly not the beauty of all hallows, lulled as if into a dream in this serenity of air and heavens, which was to leave the sharpest impression upon me. And what kind of first showing would it have made, I speculated, if an autumnal gale had been shrilling and trumpeting across its narrow bay, clots of wind-borne spume floating among its dusky pinnacles, and the roar of the sea echoing against its walls. Imagine it frozen, stark in winter, icy hoarfrost edging its every boss, moulding, finial, crocket, cusp. Indeed, are there not works of man, legacies of a half-forgotten past, scattered across this human world of ours from China to Peru, which seem to daunt the imagination with their incomprehensibility? Incomprehensible, I mean, in the sense that the passion that inspired and conceived them is incomprehensible. Viewed in the light of the passing day, they might be the monuments of a race of demigods. And yet, if we could but free ourselves from our timidities and follies, we might realise that even we ourselves have an obligation to leave behind us similar memorials, testaments to the creative and faithful genius, not so much of the individual as of humanity itself. However that may be, it was my own personal fortune to see All Hallows for the first time in the heat of the dog days, after a journey which could hardly be justified except by its end. At this moment of the afternoon the great church almost cheated one into the belief that it was possessed of a life of its own. It lay, as I say, couched in its natural hollow 
basking under the dark dome of the heavens like some half-fossilized monster that might at any moment stir and awaken out of the swoon to which the wand of the enchanter had committed it. And with every inch of the sun's descending journey, it changed its appearance. That is the charm of such things. Man himself, says the philosopher, is the sport of change. His life and the life around him are but the flotsam of a perpetual flux. Yet, haunted by ideals, egged on by impossibilities, he builds his vision of the changeless, and time diversifies it with its colours and its effects at leisure. It was drawing near to harvest now. The summer was nearly over. The corn would soon be in stook. The season of silence had come. Not even the robins had yet begun to practice their autumnal lament. I should have come earlier. The distance was of little account, but nine flinty hills in seven miles is certainly hard commons. To plod the occupant of a cloud of dust up one steep incline and so see another, to plod up that and so see a third, to surmount that and half-choked, half-roasted, to see as if in unbelievable mirage a fourth, and always stone walls, discoloured grass, no flower but ragged ragwort, whited fleabane, moody nettle, and the exquisite stubborn bindweed with its almond-burdened senses, and always the glitter and dazzle of the sun. Well, the experience grows irksome. And then that endless flint erection which some jealous lord of the manor had barricaded his verdurous estate. A fly-infested mile of the company of that wall was tantamount to making one's way into the infernal regions with Tantalus for fellow-pilgrim. And when a solitary and empty dung-cart had lumbered by, lifting the dumb dust out of the road in swirling clouds into the heat-quivering air, I had all but wept aloud. No, I shall not easily forget that walk, or the conclusion of it, when footsore, all but dead-beat, dust all over me, cheeks, lips, eyelids in my hair, dust in drifts even beneath my naked body and my clothes, I stretched my aching limbs on the turf under the straggle of trees which crowned the bluff of that last hill, still blessedly green and verdant, and feasted my eyes upon the cathedral beneath me. How odd memory is in her sorting arrangements! How perverse her pigeonholes! It had reminded me of a drizzling evening many years ago. I had stayed a moment to listen to an old Salvation Army officer preaching at a street corner. The sopped and squalid houses echoed with his harangue. His penitent's drum resembled the block of an executioner. His goatish beard wagged at every word he uttered. My brothers and sisters, he was saying, the very instant our fleshy bodies are born they begin to perish. The moment the Lord has put them together, time begins to take them to pieces again. Now, at this very instant, if you listen close, you can hear the nibblings and frettings of the moth and rust within, the worm that never dies. It's the same with human causes and creeds and institutions, just the same. Oh, then, for that strand of beauty, where all that is mortal shall be shed away, and we shall appear in the likeness and verisimilitude of what in sober and awful truth 
We are. The light striking out of an oil and colourman's shop at the street corner lay across his cheek and beard and glassed his eye. A soaked circle of humanity in which he was gesticulating stood staring and motionless, the lassies, the probationers, the melancholy idlers. I had had enough. I went away. But it is odd that so utterly inappropriate a recollection should have edged back into my mind at this moment. There was, as I have said, not a living soul in sight, only a few seabirds, oyster-catchers maybe, were jangling on the distant beach. It was now a quarter to four by my watch, and the usual pensive Lin-Lan loan from the belfry beneath me would soon no doubt be ringing to evensong. But if at that moment a triple bob major had suddenly clanged its alarm over sea and shore, I couldn't have stirred a finger's breath. Scanty though the shade afforded by the wind-shorn tuft of trees under which I lay might be, I was ineffably at peace. No bell, as a matter of fact, loosed its tongue that stagnant half-hour. Unless then the walls beneath me already concealed a few such chance visitors as myself, all hallows would be empty. A cathedral, not only without a close, but without a congregation. Yet another romantic charm. The deanery and the residences of its clergy, my old guidebook had long since informed me, were a full mile or more away. I determined in due time first to make sure of an entry, and then, having quenched my thirst, to bathe. How inhuman any extremity, hunger, fatigue, pain, desire, makes us poor humans. Thirst and drouth so haunted my mind that again and again as I glanced towards it, I supped up in one long draught that complete blue sea. But meanwhile, too, my eyes had been steadily exploring and searching out this monument of the bygone centuries beneath me. The headland faced approximately due west. The windows of the Lady Chapel, therefore, lay immediately beneath me, their fourteenth-century glass showing flatly dark amid their traceries. Above it, the shallow, V-shaped, leaden-ribbed roof of the chancel converged towards the unfinished tower, then broke away at right angles, for the cathedral was cruciform. Walls so ancient and so sparsely adorned and decorated could not be but inhospitable in effect. Their stone was of a bleached bone grey, a grey that nonetheless seemed to be as immaterial as flame or incandescent ash. They were substantial enough, however, to cast a marvellously lucent shadow of a blue no less vivid but paler than that of the sea on the shelving sward beneath them. And that shadow was steadily shifting as I watched. But even if the complete edifice had vanished into the void, the scene would still have been of an incredible loveliness. The colours in air and sky on this dangerous coast seemed to shed a peculiar unreality even on the rocks of its own outworks. So, from my vantage place on the hill that dominates it, I continued for a while to watch All Hallows, to spy upon it, and no less intently than a sentry who, not quite trusting his own eyes, has seen a dubious shape approaching him in the dusk. It may sound absurd, but I felt that at any moment I too might surprise All Hallows 
in the act of revealing what in very truth it looked like and was when no human witness was there to share its solitude. Those gigantic statues, for example, which flanked the base of the unfinished tower, an intense bluish-white in the sunlight and a bluish-purple in shadow, images of angels and of saints, as I had learned of old from my guidebook. Only six of them at most could be visible, of course, from where I sat, and yet I found myself counting them again and yet again, as if doubting my own arithmetic. For my first impression had been that seven were in view, though the figure furthest from me at the western angle showed little more than a jutting fragment of stone which might perhaps be only part and parcel of the fabric itself. But then the lights, even of day, may be deceitful, and fantasy plays strange tricks with one's eyes. With exercise, nonetheless, the mind is enabled to detect minute details which the unaided eye is incapable of particularizing. Given the imagination, man himself indeed may some day be able to distinguish what shapes are walking during our own terrestrial midnight amid the black shadows of the craters in the noonday of the moon. At any rate, I could trace at last frets of carving, minute weather marks, crookednesses, incrustations, repairings that had before passed unnoticed. These walls, indeed, like human faces, were maps and charts of their own long past. In the midst of this prolonged scrutiny, the hypnotic air, the heat, must suddenly have overcome me. I fell asleep up there, in my grove's scanty shade, and remained asleep too, long enough, as time is measured by the clocks of sleep, to dream an immense panoramic dream. On waking, I could recall only the faintest vestiges of it, and found that the hand of my watch had crept on but a few minutes in the interval. It was eight minutes past four. I scrambled up, numbed and inert, with that peculiar sense of panic which sometimes follows an uneasy sleep. What folly to have been frittering time away within sight of my goal at an hour when no doubt the cathedral would soon be closed to visitors and abandoned for the night to its own secret ruminations. I hastened down the steep rounded incline of the hill, and having skirted under the sunlit expanse of the walls, came presently to the south door, only to discover that my forebodings had been justified, and that it was already barred and bolted. The discovery seemed to increase my fatigue fourfold. How foolish it is to obey mere caprices! What a straw is man! I glanced up into the beautiful shell of masonry above my head. Shapes and figures in stone it showed in plenty, symbols of an imagination that had flamed and faded, leaving this signature for sole witness. But not a living bird or butterfly. There was but one faint chance left of making an entry. Hunted now rather than hunter, I hastened out again into the full blazing flood of sunshine, and once more came within sight of the sea, a sea so near at last that I could hear its enormous sallies and murmurings. Indeed, I had not realised until that moment how closely the great western doors of the cathedral abutted on the beach. It was as if its hospitality had been deliberately designed, not for a people to whom the faith of which it was the shrine had become a weariness and a commonplace, 
but for the solace of pilgrims from over the ocean. I could see them tumbling about in their cockle boats out of the great hollow ships, sails idle, anchors down, see them leaping ashore and straggling up across the sands to these all-welcoming portals, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia and in the parts of Egypt about Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, we do hear them speak in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. And so, at last, I found my way into all hallows, entering by a rounded dwarfish side door with zigzag mouldings. There hung for Corbel to its dripstone a curious leering face with its forked tongue out to give me welcome, and an appropriate one too for the figure I made. But once beneath that prodigious roof-tree I forgot myself and everything that was mine. The hush, the coolness, the unfathomable twilight drifted in on my small human consciousness. Not even the ocean itself is able so completely to receive one into its solacing bosom. Except for the windows over my head, filtering with their stained glass the last western radiance of the sun, there was but little visible colour in those great spaces, and severe economy of decoration. The stone piers carried their round arches with an almost intimidating impassivity. By deliberate design, too, or by some illusion of perspective, the whole floor of the building appeared steadily to ascend towards the east, where a dark wooden multitudinously figured rood screen shut off the choir and the high altar from the nave. I seemed to have exchanged one universal actuality for another, the burning world of nature for this oasis of quiet. Here the wings of the imagination need never rest in their flight out of the wilderness into the unknown. Thus resting, I must again have fallen asleep, and so swiftly can even the merest freshet of sleep affect the mind, that when my eyes opened, I was completely at a loss. Where was I? What demon of what romantic chasm had swept my poor drowsy body into this immense haunt? the din and clamour of an horrific dream, whose fainting rumour was still in my ear, became suddenly stilled. Then, at one and the same moment, a sense of utter dismay at earthly surroundings no longer serene and peaceful, but grim and forbidding, flooded my mind, and I became aware that I was no longer alone. Twenty or thirty paces away, and a little this side of the rude screen, an old man was standing. To judge from the black and purple velvet and tassel-tagged gown he wore, he was a verger. He had not realised, it seemed, that a visitor shared his solitude. And yet he was listening. His head was craned forward and leaned sideways on his rusty shoulders. As I steadily watched him, he raised his eyes, and with a peculiar stealthy deliberation scanned the complete upper regions of the northern transept. Not the faintest rumour of any sound that may have attracted his attention reached me where I sat. Perhaps a wild bird had made its entry through a broken pane of glass, and with its cry had at the same moment awakened me and caught his attention. Or maybe the old man was waiting for some fellow occupant to join him from above. I continued to watch him, 
Even at this distance, the silvery twilight cast by the clerestory windows was sufficient to show me, though vaguely, his face, the high sloping nose, the lean cheekbones and protruding chin. He continued so long in the same position that I at last determined to break in on his reverie. At sound of my footsteps, his head sunk cautiously back upon his shoulders, and he turned, and then motionlessly surveyed me as I drew near. He resembled one of those old men whom Rembrandt delighted in drawing, the knotted hands, the black, drooping eyebrows, the wide, thin-lipped, ecclesiastical mouth, the intent, cavernous, dark eyes beneath the heavy folds of their lids. White as a miller with dust, hot and draggled, I was hardly the kind of visitor that any self-respecting custodian would warmly welcome. But he greeted me none the less with every mark of courtesy. I apologised for the lateness of my arrival and explained it as best I could. Until I caught sight of you, I concluded lamely, I hadn't ventured very far in, otherwise I may have found myself a prisoner for the night. It must be dark in here when there is no moon. The old man smiled, but wryly. As a matter of fact, sir, he replied, the cathedral is closed to visitors at four. At such times, that is, when there is no afternoon service. Services are not as frequent as they were, but visitors are rare too. In winter, in particular, you notice the gloom, as you say, sir. Not that I ever spend a night in here, though I am usually last to leave. There's a risk of fire to be thought of, and I think I should have detected your presence here, sir. One becomes accustomed after many years. There was the usual trace of official pedantry in his voice, but it was more pleasing than otherwise. Nor did he show any wish to be rid of me. He continued his survey, although his eye was a little absent and his attention seemed to be divided. I thought perhaps I might be able to find a room for the night and really explore the cathedral tomorrow morning. It has been a tiring journey. I come from B. Ah, from B. It is a fatiguing journey, sir, taken on foot. I used to walk in there to see a sick daughter of mine. Carriage parties occasionally make their way here, but not so much as once. We are too far out of the hurly-burly to be much intruded on. Not that them who come to make their worship here are intruders, far from it. But most that come are mere sightseers, and the fewer of them, I say, in the circumstances, the better. Something in what I had said, or in my appearance, seemed to have reassured him. Well, I cannot claim to be a regular churchgoer, I said. I am myself a mere sightseer, and yet, even to sit here for a few minutes is to be reconciled. Ah, reconciled, sir, the old man repeated, turning away. I can well imagine it, after that journey, on such a day as this. But to live here is another matter. I was thinking of that, I replied in the foolish attempt to retrieve the position. It must, as you say, be uh, desolate enough in the winter, for, for, for two-thirds of the year, uh, indeed. We have our storms, sir, the bad, with the good, he agreed, and our position is especially uh, prolific in what they call sea fog. It comes driving in from the sea for days and nights together, gale and mist, so that you can scarcely see your open hand in front of your eyes, even in broad daylight. 
and the noise of it, sir, sweeping across overhead in that williness of mist, if you take me, is most peculiar. It's shocking to a stranger. No, sir, we are left pretty much to ourselves when the fine weather birds have flown. You'd be astonished at the power of the winds here. There was a mason, a local man, too, not above two or three years ago, was blown clean off the roof from under the tower, tossed up in the air like an empty sack. But, and the old man at last allowed his eyes to stray upwards to the roof again, but there's not much doing now, he seemed to be pondering. Nothing open. I mustn't detain you, I said, but you were saying that services are infrequent now. Why is that, when one thinks of... But tact restrained me. Pray don't think of keeping me, sir, it's part of my duties. But from a remark you let fall, I was supposing you may have seen something that appeared, I understand, not many months ago in the newspapers. We lost our dean, Dean Pomfrey, last November. To all intents and purposes, I mean, and his office has not yet been filled. Between you and me, sir, there's a hitch. Though I should wish it to go no further. They are greedy monsters, those newspapers. No respect, no discretion, no decency, in my view. And they copy each other like cats in a chorus. We have never wanted to be a notoriety here, sir, and not of late, of all times. We must face our own troubles. You'd be astonished how callous the mere sightseer can be. And not only them from over the water, whom our particular troubles cannot concern, but far worse, parties as English as you or me. They ask you questions you wouldn't believe possible in a civilised country. Not that they care what becomes of us, not one iota, sir. We talk of them masked up inquisitors in olden times, but there's many a human being in our own world would enjoy seeing a fellow creature on the rack if he could get the opportunity. It's a heartless age, sir. This was queerish talk in the circumstances, and after all I myself was of the glorious company of the sightseers. I held my peace and the old man, as if to make amends, asked me if I would care to see any particular part of the building. The light is smalling, he explained, but still, if we keep to the ground level, there'll be a few minutes to spare, and we shall not be interrupted if we go quietly on our way. For the moment the reference eluded me. I could only thank him for the suggestion, and once more beg him not to put himself to any inconvenience. I explained, too, that though I had no personal acquaintance with Dr. Pomfrey, I had read of his illness in the newspapers. Isn't he, I asked a little dubiously, the author of The, the Church and the Folk? If so, he must be an exceedingly learned and delightful man. Aye, sir, the old verger put up a hand towards me. You may well say it. A saint, if ever there was one. But it's worse than an illness, sir. It's oblivion. And thank God the newspapers didn't get hold of more than a bare outline. He dropped his voice. Uh, this way, if you please. And he led me off gently down the aisle, once more coming to a standstill beneath the roof of the tower. What I mean, sir, is that there's very few left in this world who have any place in their minds for a sacred confidence. No reverence, sir. They would as leaf all hallows and all it stands for were swept away tomorrow demolished to the dust. And that gives me the greatest caution with whom I speak. 
but sharing one's troubles is sometimes a relief. If it weren't so, why do those Catholics have their wooden boxes all built for the purpose? What else, I ask you, is the meaning of their fasts and penances? You see, sir, I am myself, and have been for upwards of twelve years now, the dean's verger. In the sight of no respecter of persons, of offices and dignities, that is, I take it, I might claim to be even an elder brother. In our dean, sir, was a man who was all things to all men. No pride of place, no vauntingness, none of your apron and gaiter, high and mightiness whatsoever, sir. And then that, and to come on us without warning, or at least without warning as could be taken as such. I followed his eyes into the darkening stony spaces above us. A light, like tarnished silver, lay over the soundless vaultings. But so, of course, dusk, either of evening or daybreak, would affect the ancient stones. Nothing moved there. You must understand, sir, the old man was continuing. The procession for divine service proceeds from the vestry over yonder, out through those wrought iron gates, and so under the rude screen and into the chancel there. Visitors are admitted on showing a card or a word to the verger in charge, but not otherwise. If you stand a pace or two to the right, you will catch a glimpse of the altar screen, 14th century work, Bishop Robert de Beaufort, and a unique example of the age. But what I was saying is that when we proceed for the services out of here, into there, it has always been our custom to keep pretty close together, more seemly and decent, sir, than straggling in like so many sheep. Besides, sir, aren't we at such times in the manner of an array, marching as to war, if you take me? It's a lesson in objects. The third verger leading, then the choristers, boys and men, though sadly depleted, then the minor canons, then any other dignitaries who may happen to be present, with the canon in residence, then myself, sir, followed by the dean. There hadn't been much amiss up to then. And on that afternoon, I can vouch, and I've repeated it ad nauseum, there was not a single stranger out in this beyond here, sir, nave or transept. Not within my view, that is. One can't be expected to see through four feet of Norman stone. Well, sir, we had gone on our way, and I had actually turned about as usual to bow Dr. Pomfrey into his stall, when I found, uh, to my consternation, to my consternation, I say, he wasn't there. It alarmed me, sir, and as you might well believe if you knew the full circumstances... Not that I lost my presence of mind. My first duty was to see all things to be done in order and nothing unseemly to occur. My feelings were another matter. The old gentleman had left the vestry with us and that I knew. I had myself robed him as usual and he, in his own manner, smiling with his Well, Jones, another day gone, another day gone. He was always an anxious gentleman for time, sir, how we spend it and all. As I say, then, it was behind me when we swept out of the gates. I saw him coming on out of the tail of my eye. We grow accustomed to it, to see with the whole of the eye, I mean, and then, not a vestige, and me, well, sir, nonplussed, as you may imagine. I gave a look and sign at Canon Ockham, and the service proceeded as usual. 
while I hurried back to the vestry thinking the poor gentleman must have been taken suddenly ill. And yet, sir, I was not surprised to find the vestry vacant and him not there. I had been expecting matters to come to what you might call a head. As best I could I held my tongue, and a fortunate thing it was that Canon Ockham was then in residence and not Canon Lee Sugar, though perhaps I'm not the one to say it. No, sir, our beloved Dean, as pious and unworldly a gentleman as ever graced the church, was gone for ever. He was not to appear in our midst again. He had been, and the old man with elevated eyebrows and long lean mouth nearly whispered the words into my ear. He had been absconded. Abducted, sir. Abducted, I murmured. The old man closed his eyes and with trembling lids added, He was found, sir, late that night, just up there in what they call the trophy room, sitting in a corner there, weeping. A child. Not a word of what had persuaded him to go or misled him there. Not a word of sorrow or sadness, thank God. He didn't know us, sir. Didn't know me. Just simple, harmless, memory all gone. Simple, sir. It was foolish to be whispering together like this beneath these enormous spaces, with not so much as a clothes moth for sign of life within view. But I even lowered my voice still farther. Were there no premonitory symptoms? Had he been failing for long? The spectacle of grief in any human face is afflicting, but in a face as aged and resigned as this old man's, I turned away in remorse the moment the question was out of my lips. Emotion is a human solvent and a sort of friendliness had sprung up between us. If you'll just follow me, he whispered, there's a little place where I make my ablutions that might be of service, sir. We could converse there in better comfort. I am sometimes reminded of those words in Ecclesiastes, and a bird of the air shall tell of the matter. There's not much in our poor human affairs, sir, that was not known to the writer of that book. He turned and led the way with surprising celerity, gliding along in his thin-soled, square-toed, clerical springside boots, and came to a pause outside a nail-studded door. He opened it with a huge key, and admitted me into a recess under the central tower. We mounted a spiral stone staircase and passed along a corridor hardly more than two feet wide, and so dark that now and again I thrust out my fingertips in search of his black velveted gown to make sure of my guide. This corridor at length conducted us into a little room, whose only illumination I gathered was that of the ebbing dusk from within the cathedral. The old man, with trembling rheumatic fingers, lit a candle, and thrusting its stick into the middle of an old oak table, pushed open yet another thick oaken door. You'll find a basin and a towel in there, sir, if you'll be so kind. I entered. A print of the crucifixion was tin-tacked to the panelled wall, and beneath it stood a tin basin and a jug on a stand. Never was water sweeter. I laved my face and hands and drank deep, my throat like a parched river course after a drought. What appeared to be a tarnished censer lay in one corner of the room. A pair of seven-branched candlesticks shared a recess with a mousetrap and a book. 
My eyes passed wearily yet gratefully from one to another of those mute, discarded objects while I stood, drying my hands. When I returned, the old man was standing motionless before the spike-barred grill of the window, peering out and down. You asked me, sir, he said, turning his lank, waxen face into the feeble rays of the candle. You asked me, sir, a question which, if I understood you right, was this. Was there anything that had occurred previous that would explain what I've been telling you? Well, sir, it's a long story, and one best restricted to them, perhaps, that have the good will of things at heart. All Hallows, I might say, sir, is my second home. I've been here, boy and man, for close on fifty-five years. I've seen four bishops pass away, and have served under no less than five several deans. Dr. Pomfrey, poor gentleman, being the last of the five. If such a word could be excused, sir, it's no exaggeration to say that Canon Lee Sugar is a greenhorn by comparison, which may in part be why he has never quite hit it off, as they say, with Canon Ockham, or even with Archdeacon Trafford, though he's another kind of gentleman altogether, and he is at present abroad. He had what they call a breakdown in health, sir. Now, in my humble opinion, what was required was not only wisdom and knowledge, but simple common sense. In the circumstances I am about to mention, it serves no purpose for any of us to be talking too much, to be forever sitting at a table with shut doors and finger on lip, and discussing what, to most intents and purposes, would hardly be called evidence at all, sir. What is the use of argufying, splitting hairs, objurgating about trifles, when matters are sweeping rapidly on from bad to worse? I say it with all due respect, and not, I hope, thrusting myself into what doesn't concern me. Dr. Pomfrey might be with us now in his own self and reason, if only common caution had been observed. But now that poor gentleman is gone beyond all that. There is no hope of action or agreement left, none whatsoever. They meet and they meet, and they have now one expert, now another down from London, and even from the continent. And I don't say they aren't knowledgeable gentlemen either, nor a pride to their profession. But why not tell all? Why keep back the very secret of what we know? That's what I'm asking. And what's the answer? Why, simply that they don't want to believe what runs counter to their hopes and wishes and credibilities and comfort in this world. That's why they keep out of sight as long as decency permits. Canon Lee Shugan knows, sir, what I know, and how, I ask, is he going to get to grips with it at this late day if he refuses to acknowledge that such things are what every fragment of evidence goes to prove that they are? It's we, sir, and not the rest of the heedless world outside, who in the long and the short of it are responsible. And what I say is, no power or principality here or hereunder can take possession of a place while those inside have faith enough to keep them out. But once let that falter, the seas are in. And when I say no power, sir, I mean, with all deference, even Satan himself. The lean, lank face had set at the word like a wax mask. The black eyes beneath the heavy lids were fixed on mine with an acute intensity, and though more inscrutable things haunted them, 
with an unfaltering courage. So dense a hush hung about us that the very stones of the walls seemed to be of silence solidified. It is curious what a refreshment of spirit a mere tin basin full of water may be. I stood, leaning against the edge of the table, so that the candlelight still rested on my companion. What is wrong here? I asked him boldly. He seemed not to have expected so direct an inquiry. Wrong, sir? Why? If I might make so bold, he replied with a wan, faraway smile, and gently drawing his hand down one of the velvet lapels of his gown. If I might make so bold, sir, I take it that you have come as a direct answer to prayer. His voice faltered. I am an old man now, and nearly at the end of my tether. You must realise, if you please, that I can't get any help that I can understand. I'm not doubting that the gentlemen I've mentioned have only the salvation of the cathedral at heart. The cause, sir, and a graver responsibility yet, but they refuse to see how close to the edge of things we are, and how we are drifting. Take a mere situation. So far as my knowledge tells me, there is no sacred edifice in the whole kingdom, of a peace, that is, with all hallows, not only in mere size and age, but in what I might call sanctity and tradition, that is so open, open, I mean, sir, to attack of this peculiar and terrifying nature. But terrifying? Terrifying, sir, though I hold fast to what wits my maker has bestowed upon me. Where else, may I ask, would you expect the powers of darkness to congregate in open besiegement than in this narrow valley? First, the sea out there. Are you aware, sir, that ever since living remembrance, flood tide has been gnawing and mumbling its way into this bay to the extent of three or four feet per annum? Forty inches and forty inches and forty inches, corroding on and on. Watch it, sir, man and boy as I have these sixty years past, and then make a century of it, not to mention positive leaps and bounds. And now, think a moment of the floods and gales that fall upon us autumn and winter through and even in spring, when this valley is like a paradise to young eyes in any place on earth. They make the roads from the nearest towns well-nigh impassable, which means that for some months of the year we are, to all intents and purposes, clean cut off from the rest of the world, as the shingles out there are from the mainland. Are you aware, sir, I continue, that as we stand now we are above a mile from traces of the nearest human habitation, and them merely the relics of a burnt-out old farmstead? I warrant that if, and which God forbid, you had been shut up here during the coming night, and it was a near thing, but that you weren't, I warrant you might have shouted yourself dumb out of the nearest window, if window you could reach, and not a human soul to heed or help you. I shifted my hands on the table. It was tedious to be asking questions that received only such vague and evasive replies, and it is always a little disconcerting in the presence of a stranger to be spoken to so close and with such positiveness. Well, I smiled, I hope I shouldn't have disgraced my nerves to such an extreme as that. As a small boy, one of my particular fancies was to spend a night in the pulpit. There's a cushion, you know. The old man's solemn glance never swerved from my eyes. But I take it, sir, he said, if you had ventured to give out a text up there in the dark hours, 
your jocular young mind would not have been prepared for any kind of a congregation. You mean, I said a little sharply, that the place is haunted? The absurd notion flitted across my mind of some wandering tribe of gypsies chancing on a refuge so ample and isolated as this and taking up its quarters in its secret parts. The old church must be honeycombed with corridors and passages and chambers, pretty much like the one in which we were now concealed. And what does Catholic imply but an infinite hospitality within prescribed limits? But the old man had taken me at my word. I mean, sir, he said firmly, shutting his eyes, that there are devilish agencies at work here. He raised his hand. Don't, I entreat you, dismiss what I am saying as the wanderings of a foolish old man. He drew a little nearer. I have heard them with these ears. I've seen them with these eyes, though whether they have any positive substance, sir, is beyond my small knowledge to declare. But what indeed might we expect their substance to be? First, I take it, says the book, to be such as no man can by learning define, nor by wisdom search out. Is that so? Then I go by the book, and next, what does the same word, or very near it, I speak of the Apocrypha, say of their purpose? It says, and correct me if I go astray, devils are creatures made by God, and that for vengeance. So far so good, sir. We stop when we can go no further. Vengeance. But of their power, of what can they do? I can give you definite evidences. It would be a byword if once the rumour was spread abroad, and if it is not so, why, I ask, does every expert that comes here leave us in haste and in dismay? They go off with their tails between their legs. They see, they grope in, but they don't believe. They invent reasons, and they hasten to leave us. His face shook with the emphasis he laid upon the word. Why? Why? Because the experience is beyond their knowledge, sir. He drew back, breathless, and, as I could see, profoundly moved. Uh, but surely, I said, every old building is bound in time to show symptoms of decay. Half the cathedrals in England, half its churches even, of any age have been restored, and in many cases with ghastly results this new grouting and so on. Why, only the other day, uh, all I mean is, why should you suppose mere wear and tear should be caused by any other agency than... The old man turned away. I must apologise, he interrupted me with his inimitable admixture of modesty and dignity. I'm a poor mouth at explanations, sir. Decay, stress, strain, settling, dissolution... I have heard those words bandied from lip to lip like a game at cup and ball. They fill me with nausea. Why? I'm speaking not of dissolutions, sir, but of repairs, restorations, not decay, strengthening, not a corroding loss, an awful progress. I could show you places, and chiefly obscured from direct view and difficult of a close examination, sir, where stones lately as rotten as pumice and as fretted as a sponge have been replaced by others fresh quarried and nothing of their kind within twenty miles. There are spots where massive blocks a yard or more square have been pushed into place by sheer force. 
All Hallows is safer at this moment than it has been for three hundred years. They meant well, them who came to sea, full of talk and fine language, and went dumb away. I grant you they meant well, I allow that. They hummed and they hawed, they smirked this and they shrugged that. But at heart, sir, they were cowed, horrified, all at a loss. Their very faces showed it. But if you ask me for what purpose such doings are afoot, I have no answer. None. But now, supposing you yourself, sir, were one of them and your repute at stake, and you were called in to look at a house which the owners of it and them who had it in trust were disturbed by its being re-edificated and restored by some agency unknown to them. Supposing that... Why? And he rapped with his knuckles on the table, being human and not one of us. Mightn't you be going away too with mouth shut because you didn't want to get talked about to your disadvantage? And wouldn't you at last dismiss the whole thing as a foolish delusion in the belief that living in out-of-the-way parts like these cuts a man off from the world, breeds maggots in the mind? I assure you they don't, not even Canon Ockham himself to the full. They don't believe even me. And yet when they have their meetings of the chapter they talk and wrangle around and round about nothing else. I can bear the other without a murmur. What God sends, I say, we humans deserve. We have laid ourselves open to it. But when you buttress up blindness and wickedness with downright folly, why then, sir... I sometimes fear for my own reason. He set his shoulders as square as his aged frame would permit, and with fingers clutching the lapels beneath his chin, he stood gazing out into the darkness through that narrow inward window. Ah, sir, he began again, I have not spent sixty years in this solitary place without paying heed to my own small wandering thoughts and instincts. Look at your newspapers, sir. What they call the Great War is over, and he'd be a brave man who would take an oath before heaven that that was only of human designing. And yet what do we see around us? Nothing but strife and juggleries and hatred and contempt and discord wherever you look. I'm no scholar, sir, but so far as my knowledge and experience carry me, we human beings are living today merely from hand to mouth. We learn today what ought to have been done yesterday, and yet are at a loss to know what's to be done tomorrow. And the church, sir, God forbid I should push my way into what does not concern me, and if you had told me half an hour gone by that you were a regular churchman, I shouldn't be pouring out all this to you now. It wouldn't be seemly. But being not so gives me confidence. By merely listening you can help me, sir, though you can't help us. Centuries ago, and in my humble judgment rightly, we broke away from the parent stem and rooted ourselves in our own soil, but right or wrong, doesn't that of itself, I ask you, make us all the more open to attack from him who never wearies in going to and fro in the world seeking whom he may devour? I'm not wishing you to take sides. But a gentleman doesn't scoff. You don't find him jeering at what he doesn't rightly understand. He keeps his own counsel, sir. And that's where, as I say, canonly Sugar sets me doubting. He refuses to make allowances, though up there in London things may look different. 
He gets his company there. And then for him, the whole kaleidoscope changes, if you take me. The old man scanned me an instant, as if inquiring within himself whether, after all, I too might not be one of the outcasts. You see, sir, he went on dejectedly, I can bear what may be to come. I can, if need be, live on through what few years may yet remain to me and keep going, as they say. But only if I can be assured that my own inmost senses are not cheating and misleading me. Tell me the worst, and you will have done an old man a service he can never repay. Tell me, on the other hand, that I am merely groping along in the network of devilish delusion, sir. Well, in that case, I hope to be with my master, with Dr. Pomfrey, as soon as possible. We were all children once, and now there's nothing worse in this world for him to come into, in a manner of speaking. Oh, sir, I sometimes wonder if what we call childhood and growing up isn't a copy of the fate of our ancient forefathers. In the beginning of time there were fallen angels, we are told, but even if it weren't there in holy writ, we might have learnt it of our own fears and misgivings. I sometimes find myself looking at a young child with little short of awe, sir, knowing that within its mind is a scene of peace and paradise of which we older folk have no notion, and which will fade out of it as life wears on, like the mere tabernacling of a dream. There was no trace of unction in his speech, though the phraseology might suggest it, and he smiled at me as if in reassurance. You see, sir, if I have any true notion of the matter, then I say heaven is dealing very gently with Dr. Pomfrey. He has gone back, and, I take it, his soul is elsewhere and at rest. He had come a pace or two nearer, and the candlelight now cast grotesque shadows in the hollows of his brows and cheekbones, silvering his long, scanty hair. The eyes, dimming with age, were fixed on mine, as if in incommunicable entreaty. I was at a loss to answer him. He dropped his hands to his side. The fact is, he looked cautiously about him, what I am now being so bold as to suggest, though it's a familiar enough experience to me, may put you in actual physical danger. But then, duty's duty and a deed of kindness from a stranger to stranger, quite another matter. You seem to have come, if I may say so, in a nick of time, that was all. On the other hand, we can leave the building at once if you are so minded. In any case, we must be gone well before dark sets in. Even mere human beings are best not disturbed at any night-time work they may be after. The dark brings recklessness. Conscience cannot see as clear in the dark. Besides, I once delayed too long myself. There's not much of day left even now, though I see by the almanac there should be a slip of moon tonight, unless the sky is overclouded. All that I'm meaning is that our all in all, so to speak, is the calm, untrammeled evidence of the outer senses, sir. And there comes a time when, well, one hesitates to trust one's own. I have read somewhere that it is only its setting, the shape, the line, the fold, the angle of the lid, and so on, that gives its finer shades of meaning and significance to the human eye. Looking into his, even in that narrow and melancholy illumination, was like pondering over a grey, salt, desolate pool, such as sometimes neighbours the sea on a flat and dangerous coast. Perhaps if I had been a little less credulous or 
less exhausted, I should by now have begun to doubt this old creature's sanity. And yet surely, at even the faintest contact with the insane, a sentinel in the mind sends up flares and warnings. The very landscape changes, there is a sense of insecurity. If, too, the characters inscribed by age and experience on a man's face can be evidence of goodness and simplicity, then my companion was safe enough. To trust in his sagacity was another matter. But then there was all Hallows itself to take into account. That first glimpse from my green headland of its lowering yet lovely walls had been strangely moving. There are buildings, almost as though they were once copies of originals now half forgotten in the human mind, that have a singular influence on the imagination. Even now in this remote candlelit room, immured between its massive stones, the vast edifice seemed to be gently and furtively fretting its impression on my mind. I glanced again at the old man. He had turned aside as if to leave me, unbiased to my own decision. How would a lifetime spent between these sombre walls have affected me, I wondered. Surely it would be an act of mere decency to indulge their worn-out hermit. He had appealed to me. If I were ten times more reluctant to follow him, I could hardly refuse. Not at any rate without risking a retreat as humiliating as that of the architectural experts he had referred to, with my tail between my legs. I only wish I could hope to be of any real help. He turned about, his expression changed, as if at the coming of a light. Why then, sir, let us be gone at once. You are with me, sir, that was all I hoped and asked. And now, there's no time to waste. He tilted his head to listen a moment, with that large, flat, shell-like ear of his which age alone seems to produce. Matches and candles, sir, he had lowered his voice to a whisper. But, though we mustn't lose each other, you and me, I mean... Not, I think, a naked light. What I would suggest, if you have no objection, is your kindly grasping my gown. Uh, there's a kind of streamer here, you see, as if made for the purpose. There will be a good deal of up and downing, but I know the building blindfold, and as you might say, inch by inch, and now that the bell ringers have given up ringing, it is more in my charge than ever. He stood back and looked at me with folded hands whimsical, childlike smile on his aged face. I sometimes think to myself, I'm like the sentry, sir, in that play by William Shakespeare. I saw it, sir, years ago, on my only visit to London, when I was a boy. If ever there were a villain, for all his fine talk and all, commend me to that ghost. I see him yet. Whisper, though it was, a sort of chirrup had come into his voice, like that of a cricket in a baker's shop. I took tight hold of the velveted tag of his gown. He opened the door, pressed the box of safety matches into my hand, himself grasped the candlestick, and then blew out the light. We were instantly marooned in an impenetrable darkness. Now, sir, if you would kindly remove your walking shoes, he muttered close in my ear, you should proceed with less noise. I shan't hurry you and please to tug at the streamer if you need attention. In a few minutes the blackness will be less intense. As I stooped down to loose my shoelaces, I heard my heart thumping merrily away. It had been listening to our conversation, apparently. I slung my shoes around my neck, as I often had done as a boy when going paddling, and we set out 
on our expedition. I have endured too often the nightmare of being lost and abandoned in the stony bowels of some strange and prodigious building to take such an adventure lightly. I clung, I confess, desperately tight to my lifeline, and we groped steadily onward, my guide ever and again turning back to mutter warning or encouragement in my ear. Now I found myself steadily ascending, and then in a while feeling my way down flights of hollowly worn stone steps and anon brushing along a gallery or corkscrewing up a newel staircase so narrow that my shoulders all but touched the walls on either side. In spite of the sepulchral chill in these bowels of the cathedral, I was soon suffocatingly hot, and the effort to see became intolerably fatiguing. Once, to recover our breath, we paused opposite a slit in the thickness of the masonry, at which to breathe the tepid sweetness of the outer air. It was faint with the scent of wild flowers and cool of the sea. And presently after, at a barred window high overhead, I caught a glimpse of the night's first stars. We then turned inward once more, ascending yet another spiral staircase, and now the intense darkness had thinned a little, the groined roof above us becoming faintly discernible. A fresher air softly fanned my cheek, and then trembling fingers groped over my breast, and cold and bony clutched my own. Dead still here, sir, if you please. So close sounded the whispered syllables, the voice might have been a messenger's within my own consciousness. Dead still here. There's a drop of some sixty or seventy feet a few paces on. I peered out across the abyss, conscious, as it seemed, of the huge, superincumbent weight of the noble fretted roof, only a small space now, immediately above our heads. As we approached the edge of this stony precipice, the gloom paled a little, and I guessed that we must be standing in some coin of the southern transept, for what light the evening skies now afforded was clearer towards the right. On the other hand, it seemed the northern windows opposite us were most of them boarded up or obscured in some fashion. Gazing out, I could detect scaffolding poles like knitting needles, thrust out from the walls and a balloon-like spread of canvas above them. For the moment my ear was haunted by what appeared to be the droning of an immense insect, but this presently ceased. I fancy it was internal only. You will understand, sir, breathed the old man close beside me, and we still stood grotesquely enough hand in hand. The scaffolding over there has been in position a good many months now. It was put up when the last gentleman came down from London to inspect the fabric, and it's been left there ever since. Now, sir, though I implore you to be cautious. I hardly needed the warning. With one hand clutching my box of matches, the fingers of the other interlaced with my companions, I strained every sense and yet I could detect not the faintest stir or murmur under that wide-spreading roof, only a hush as profound as that which must reign in the royal chamber of the Pyramid of Cheops, faintly swirled in the labyrinths of my ear. How long we stayed in this position I cannot say, but minutes sometimes seem like hours, and then, without the slightest warning, I became aware of a peculiar and incessant vibration it is impossible to give a name to it, 
It suggested the remote whirring of an enormous millstone, or that, though without definite pulsation, or revolving wings, or even the spinning of an immense top. In spite of his age, my companion apparently had ears as acute as mine. He had clutched me tighter a full ten seconds before I myself became aware of this disturbance of the air. He pressed closer. Do you see that, sir? I gazed and gazed and saw nothing. Indeed, even in what I had seemed to hear, I might have been deceived. Nothing is more treacherous in certain circumstances, except possibly the eye, than the ear. It magnifies, distorts, and may even invent. As instantaneously as I had become aware of it, the murmur had ceased. And then, though I cannot be certain, it seemed the dingy and voluminous spread of canvas over there had perceptibly trembled, as if a huge, cautious hand had been thrust out to draw it aside. No time was given to me to make sure the old man had hastily withdrawn me into the opening of the wall through which we had issued, and we made no pause in our retreat until we had come again to the narrow slit of window which I have spoken of and could refresh ourselves with a less stagnant air. We stood here resting a while. Well, sir, he inquired at last in the same flat, muffled tones, do you ever pass along here alone? I whispered. Oh, yes, sir. I make it a habit to be the last to leave, and often the first to come, but I'm usually gone by this hour. I looked close at the dim face in profile against that narrow oblong of night. It's so difficult to be sure of oneself, I said. Have you actually ever encountered anything, near at hand, I mean? I keep a sharp lookout, sir. Maybe they don't think me of enough importance to molest the last rat as they say. But have you? I might myself have been communicating with the phantasmal genius Loki of all hallows, our muffled voices, this intense caution and secret listening, the slight breathlessness, as if at any instant one's heart were ready for flight. But have you? Well, yes, sir, he said. And in this very gallery? They nearly had me, sir, but by good fortune there's a recess a little further on, stored up with some old fragments of carving from the original building, sixth century, so it said, stone capitals, heads and hands and such like. I had had my warning, and managed to leap in there and conceal myself, but only just in time. Indeed, sir, I confess, I was in such a condition of terror and horror, I turned my back. You mean you heard but didn't look, and something came? Yes, sir. I seem to be reduced to no bigger than a child, huddled up there in that corner. There was a sound like clanging metal, but I don't think it was metal. It drew nearer to furious speed, then passed me, making a filthy gust of wind. For some instants I couldn't breathe. The air was gone. And no other sound. No other, sir, except, out of the distance, a noise like the sounding of a stupendous kind of gibberish, a calling, or so it seemed. No human sound. The air shook with it. You see, sir, I myself wasn't of any consequence, I take it, unless mere obstruction in the way. But I have heard it said, somewhere, 
that the rarity of these happenings is only because it's a pain and a torment, and not any sort of pleasure for such beings, such apparitions, sir, good or bad, to visit our outward world. That's what I've heard said, though I can go no further. The time I'm telling you of was in the early winter, November. There was a dense sea fog over the valley, I remember. It eddied through that opening there into the candlelight like flowing milk. I never light up now, and if I may be forgiven the boast, sir, I seem to have almost forgotten how to be afraid. After all, in any walk of life a man can only do his best, and if there weren't such opposition and hindrances in high places, I should have nothing to complain of. What is anybody's life, sir, come past the gaiety of youth, but marking time? Did you hear anything then, sir? His gentle, monotonous mumbling ceased and we listened together, but every ancient edifice has voices and soundings of its own. There was nothing audible that I could put a name to, only what seemed to be a faint, perpetual stir or whir of grinding, such as, uh, to one's overstimulated senses, the stablest stones set one on top of the other, with an ever-slightly varying weight and stress might be likely to make perceptible in a world of matter. A world which, after all they say, is itself in unimaginably rapid rotation and under the tyranny of time. No, I hear nothing, I answered, but please don't think I'm doubting what you say. Far from it. You must remember I am a stranger and that therefore the influence of the place cannot be but less apparent to me. And you have no help in this now? No, sir, not now. But even at the best of times we had small company hereabouts and no money. Not for any substantial outlay, I mean, and not even the boldest suggests making what's called a public appeal. It's a strange thing to me, sir, but whenever the newspapers get hold of anything, they turn it into a byword and a sham. Yet how can they help themselves? with no beliefs to guide them and nothing to stay their mouths except about what for sheer human decency's sake they don't talk about. But then, who am I to complain? And now, sir, he continued with a sigh of utter weariness, if you are sufficiently rested, would you perhaps follow me onto the roof? It's the last visit I make, though by rights perhaps I should take in what there is of the tower, but I'm too old for that now, clambering and climbing over naked beams, and the ladders are not so safe as they were. We had not far to go. The old man drew open a squat, heavily ironed door at the head of a flight of wooden steps. It was latched but not bolted, and admitted us at once to the leaden roof of the building and to the immense amphitheatre of evening. The last faint hues of sunset were fading in the west, and silver-bright spicer shared with the tilted crescent of the moon the serene, lagoon-like expanse of sky above the sea. Even at this height the air was audibly stirred with the low lullaby of the tide. The staircase by which we had come out was surmounted by a large, flat penthouse roof about seven feet high. We edged softly along, then paused once more, to find ourselves now all but tete-a-tete with the gigantic figures that stood sentinel at the base of the buttresses to the unfinished tower. The tower was so far unfinished, indeed, as to wear the appearance of the ruinous, besides which what appeared to be scars and stains, as if a fire were detectable on some of its stones. 
reminding me of the legend which years before I had chanced upon, that this stretch of coast had more than once been visited centuries ago by pillaging Norsemen. The night was unfathomably clear and still. On our left rose the conical bluff of the headland crowned with a solitary grove of trees beneath which I had taken refuge from the blinding sunshine that very afternoon. Its grasses were now hoary with faintest moonlight. Far to the right stretched the flat, cold plain of the Atlantic, that enormous, darkened looking-glass of space, only a distant lightship ever and again stealthily signalling to us with a lean, phosphoric finger from its outermost reaches. The mere sense of that abysm of space, its waste powdered with the stars of the Milky Way, the mere presence of the stony leviathan on whose back we two humans now stood, dwarfed into insignificance beside these gesturing images of stone, were enough of themselves to excite the imagination. And, whether matter of fact or pure delusion, this old verger's insinuations that the cathedral was now menaced by some inconceivable danger and assault had set my nerves on edge. My feet were numb as the lead they stood upon, while the tips of my fingers tingled as if a powerful electric discharge were coursing through my body. We moved gently on, the spare shape of the old man a few steps ahead, peering cautiously to right and left of him as we advanced. Once, with a hasty gesture, he drew me back and fixed his eyes for a full minute on a figure, at two removes, which were silhouetted at that moment against the starry emptiness. A forbidding thing enough, viewed in his vague luminosity, which seemed, in spite of the unmoving stare that I fixed on it, to be perceptibly stirring on its wind-worn pedestal. But no, all's well, the man had mutely signalled to me, and we pushed on, slowly and cautiously. Indeed, I had time to notice in passing that this particular figure held stretched in its right hand a bent bow and was crowned with a high weather-worn stone coronet. One and all were frigid company. At last we completed our circuit of the tower, had come back to the place we had set out from, and stood eyeing one another like two conspirators in the clear dusk. Maybe there was a tinge of incredulity on my face. No, sir, murmured the old man, I expected no other. The night is uncommonly quiet. I've noticed that before. They seem to leave us at peace on nights of quiet. We must turn in again be getting home. Until that moment I had thought no more of where I was to sleep or to get food, nor had even realised how famished with hunger I was. Nevertheless, the notion of fumbling down again out of the open air into the narrow inward blackness of the walls from which we had just issued was singularly uninviting. Across these wide, flat stretches of roof there was at least space for flight, and there were recesses for concealment. To gain a moment's respite, I inquired if I should have much difficulty in getting a bed in the village, and, as I had hoped, the old man himself offered me hospitality. I thanked him, but still hesitated to follow, for at that moment I was trying to discover what peculiar effect of dusk and darkness a moment before had deceived me into the belief that some small animal, a dog, a spaniel, I should have guessed, had suddenly and surreptitiously taken cover behind the stone buttress nearby. But that, apparently, had been a mere illusion. The creature, whatever it might be, was no barker, at any rate. 
Nothing stirred now, and my companion seemed to have noticed nothing amiss. You were saying, I pressed him, that when repairs, restorations of the building were in contemplation, even the experts were perplexed by what they discovered. What did they actually say? Say, sir? Our voices sounded as small and meaningless up here as those of grasshoppers in a noonday meadow. Examine that balustrade which you're leaning against at this minute. Look at that gnawing and fretting, that furrowing above the lead. All that is honest wear and tear, constant weathering of the mere elements, sir. Rain and wind, and snow and frost. That's honest nature work, sir, but now compare it, if you please, with this St. Mark here, and remember, sir, these images were intended to be part and parcel of the fabric, as you might say, sentries on a castle, symbols, you understand. I stooped close under the huge grey creature of stone until my eyes were scarcely more than six inches from its pedestal, and unless the moon deceived me, I confess I could not find the slightest trace of fret or friction. Far from it, the stone had been grotesquely decorated in low relief with a gaping crocodile, a two-headed crocodile, and the angles, nubs and undulations of the creature were cut as sharp as with a knife in cheese. I drew back. Now cast your glance upwards, sir. Is that what you would call a saintly shape and gesture? What appeared to represent an eagle was perched on the image's lifted wrist, an eagle resembling a vulture. The head beneath it was poised at an angle of defiance, its ears abnormally erected on the skull, the lean right forearm extended with pointing forefinger as if in derision. Its stony gaze was fixed upon the stars, its whole aspect was hostile, sinister and intimidating. I drew aside. The faintest puff of milk-warm air from over the sea stirred on my cheek. Aye, sir, and so with one or two of the rest of them, the old man commented as he watched me. There are other wills than the Almighty's. At this, the pent-up excitement within me broke bounds. This nebulous, insinuatory talk, I all but lost my temper. I can't for the life of me understand what you're saying. I exclaimed in a voice that astonished me with its shrill volume of sound in that intense, lofty quiet. One doesn't repair in order to destroy. The old man met me without flinching. No, sir. Say you so? And why not? Are there not two kinds of change in this world, a building up and a breaking down? To give strength and endurance for evil or misguided purposes, would that power be wasted, if such was your aim? Why, sir, isn't that true even of the human mind and heart? We are here on the outskirts, I grant, but where would you expect the enemy to show himself unless in the outer defences? An institution may be beyond saving, sir. It may be being restored for a worse destruction, and a hundred trumpeting voices would make no difference when the faith and life within is tottering to its fall. Somehow this muddle of metaphors reassured me. Obviously the old man's wits had worn a little thin. He was the victim of an intelligible but monstrous hallucination. And, and yet you're taking it for granted, I expostulated, that if what you say is true, 
A stranger could be of the slightest help. A visitor, mind you, who hasn't been inside the doors of a church except in search of what is old and obsolete for years. The old man laid a trembling hand upon my sleeve. The folly of it, with my shoes hanging like ludicrous millstones round my neck. If you please, sir, he pleaded, have a little patience with me. I am preaching at nobody. I am not even hinting that them outside the fold, circumstantially speaking, aren't of the flock. All in good time, sir, the Almighty's time. Maybe, with all due respect, it's from them within that we have most to fear. And indeed, sir, believe an old man, I could never express the gratitude I feel. You have given me the occasion to unbosom myself, to make a clean breast, as they say. All Hallows is my earthly home, and, well, there, let us say no more. You couldn't help me, except only by your presence here. God alone knows who can. At that instant a dull, enormous rumble reverberated from within the building, as if a huge boulder or block of stone had been shifted or dislodged in the fabric, a peculiar grinding, nerve-wracking sound, and for the fraction of a second the flags on which we stood seemed to tremble beneath our feet. The fingers tightened on my arm. Come, sir, keep close. We must be gone at once, the quavering old voice whispered. We have stayed too long. But we emerged into the night at last without mishap. The little western door, above which the grinning head had welcomed me on my arrival, admitted us to terra firma again, and we made our way up a deep sandy track bordered by clumps of hemp agrimony and fennel and hemlock, with viper's bugloss and sea poppy blooming in the gentle dusk of night at our feet. We turned when we reached the summit of this sandy incline and looked back. All hallows, vague and enormous, lay beneath us in its hollow, resembling some natural prehistoric outcrop of that sea-worn, rock-bound coast, but strangely human and saturnine. The air was mild as milk, a pool of faintest sweetnesses, gorse, bracken, heather, and not a rumour disturbed its calm except only the furtive and stertorous sighings of the tide. But far out to sea, and beneath the horizon, summer lightnings were now in idle play, flickering into the sky like the unfolding of a signal, planet to planet, then gone. That alone, and perhaps too this feeble moonlight glinting on the ancient glass, may have accounted for the faint vitreous glare that seemed ever and again to glitter across the windows of the northern transept far beneath us. And yet how easily deceived is the imagination. This old man's talk still echoing in my ear, I could have vowed this was no reflection, but the glow of some light shining fitfully from within, outwards. We paused together beside a flowering bush of fuchsia at the wicket-gate leading into his small square of country garden. You forgive me, sir, for mentioning it, but I make it a rule as far as possible to leave all my troubles and misgivings outside when I come home. My daughter is a widow, and not long in that sad condition, so I keep as happy a face as I can on things. And yet, well, sir, I wonder at times if, if a personal sacrifice isn't incumbent on them that have their object most at heart. 
I'd go out myself very willingly, sir, I can assure you. If there was any certainty in my mind that it would serve the cause, it would be little to me if... He made no attempt to complete the sentence. On my way to bed that night, the old man led me in on tiptoe to show me his grandson. His daughter watched me intently as I stooped over the child's cot with that bird-like solicitude which all mothers show in the presence of a stranger. Her small son was of that fairness which almost suggests the unreal. He had flung back his bedclothes as if innocence in this world needed no covering or defence, and lay at ease, the dews of sleep on lip and cheek and forehead. He was breathing so quietly that not the least movement of shoulder or narrow breast was perceptible. The lovely thing, I muttered, staring at him. Where is he now, I wonder? His mother lifted her face and smiled at me with a drowsy, ecstatic happiness, then sighed. And from out of the distance there came the first prolonged whisper of a wind from over the sea. It was eleven by my watch. The storm, after the long heat of the day, seemed to be drifting inland, but all hallows, apparently, had forgotten to wind its clock. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So that was All Hallows by Walter Dillamere. It's one of his best-regarded supernatural stories. It's quite long. It just clocks in just under an hour and a half. I had some trouble recording it because I'd get lots of interruptions. The bell was going, the dogs were fighting. Um, Sheila came back. So it was it was a difficult one to record. And also I found myself, as I was getting tired, I was tripping over the ornate sentences. I mean, um, Delamere was a poet, but he loves ornate language, doesn't he? And sometimes the sentences were really hard in the vocabulary and I had to really struggle. I needed to enunciate. And as I was getting tired, I was tripping up. Unfathomable. Unfathomable. I found it really hard to say. Anyway, enough of that. Um, let me tell you about Walter de la Mer. So, John, Walter John de la Mer, was an English poet, no, of French background, obviously. Novelist and short story writer. He was born on April 25th, 1873 in Kent in England, and died on June 22nd, 56, in Twickenham, London. Dillamere is best known for his atmospheric lyrical poetry and his contribution to children's literature. Dillamere had a somewhat troubled childhood. His father died when he was only two years old, and his mother remarried, causing him to feel alienated from his stepfather. Despite these challenges, Dillamere found solace in books and developed a deep love for literature. He attended St Paul's Cathedral Choir School in London and later worked as an employee at the London office of the Anglo-American Oil Company. However, his true passion lay in writing and he published his first collection of poetry titled Songs of Childhood in 1902. The book was well received and established Delamere as a talented poet. Throughout his career, Delamere published numerous volumes of poetry including The Listeners, 1912, you may have studied that at school, Motley, 1918, The Veil, 1921, his poetry often explored themes of mystery, the supernatural and the imagination. Delamere's use of language and imagery created a dreamlike and haunting quality in his verses, captivating readers and earning him critical acclaim. Aside from his poetry, Delamere also wrote novels and short stories. His best-known work in prose is Memoirs of a Midget, 1921, wouldn't be allowed to publish that now, which won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize for Fiction. 
His short stories collected in a volume such as The Riddle and Other Stories, 1923, and The Connoisseur and Other Stories, 1926, displayed his skill in creating eerie and unsettling tales. We've only done one of his before, um, De Profundis from the Depths. De Profundis Clamavi from the Depths, I called out another scriptural reference. De La Mare's contribution to children's literature cannot be overstated. He wrote numerous enchanting and imaginative works for young readers, including Peacock Pie, 1913, a collection of poetry, and Three Muller Mulgars, 1910, a fantasy novel. These works, filled with whimsy, adventure, and memorable characters, um, have delighted generations of children. Throughout his career, Delamere received numerous accolades for his work. He was awarded the Order of the British Empire in 1948 and received the Queen's Medal for Poetry in 1953. His influence on modern poetry and children's literature continues to be felt to this day. I wonder if that's still true. So we know what he was doing. I want to talk about this one particularly. So it says, um, okay, as a poet, Delamere is often compared with Thomas Hardy and William Blake for their respective themes of mortality and visionary illumination. One of his um, co collections of like a, a chapbook or a copybook where he's got a collection of all sorts of poetry and thoughts and thinking is um, Behold This Dreamer, which I absolutely love. So this story, um, All Hallows, came out in, I think, 1926. And um, you, you read it and you think, what's that about then? So one thing we can say is it's, it is very evocative the descriptions, the description of the sea, of the of the dry trudge, uh, of being in this cool cathedral, the light effects is very, you know, he's a very um, visual and sensual writer, the cold stone, and he creates this unsettling um, atmosphere as well. It is a ghost story in that we know, so that's one thing. There are no birds there. That's a that's a warning thing, a warning um, symbol. There's a lot of symbolism in this, so. Let's think about um, symbolism. This use of symbols in art to represent things. Now, you can talk about symbols, and they're different from ciphers in that a symbol, it's not allegorical. A symbol is something that cannot be conveyed otherwise. All we can do is a symbol points at something which is outside our comprehension. Uh, and so we have the symbolist poets. I mean, there's loads of things, Art Nouveau, Austrian symbolism, Gustav Klimt, Belgian symbolism magical realism so it keeps cropping up you know surrealism english symbolism aubrey beardsley french symbolism gustave moreau uh and then the pre-raphaelites use symbolism early symbolism in germany caspar david friedrich and so you know symbolism keeps cropping up it seems to me that delamere was um using a lot of symbols so what are they about what's all hallows about so what we've said is it's a story of a haunted cathedral but I think that um, I come to the end of it. I've read it before, and I come to the end of it like, what is that about, though? And it, I, as I read it this time, the first time I read it, I thought, I, I don't know. And as I've kind of been looking through it and reading it again and uh, labouring with it, really, and I appreciate the language, even though it's hard to say, but it seems to me, you know, listen, first of all, we've got to realise that if you just look at it, Although de la Mer may not be a regular churchgoer, and he says that for the narrator, and he comes as an outsider, he's culturally Christian, deeply culturally Christian. This building has been a Christian place of worship since the 6th century, so it's, it's 1,500 years of Christianity in that place. His, um, the language is suffused with Christianity and Christian um, knowledge. It's culturally Christian. 
And I, but what I think he's saying is that, um, you know, Nietzsche in Thus Spake Zarathustra said God is dead. But Nietzsche's point was we have killed the central motif of Western European civilization that has been, you know, for 2,000 years, and we've killed God. You may not personally have done that, but you know what I mean? As, as um, Western culture turns away from its Christian heart, then, and I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying it, it is. I mean, you know, certainly in Europe, um, congregations are diminishing rapidly. The people who do go are very old. Churches are closing. Churches that have been there for 1,500 years, 2,000 years. I mean, Carlisle Cathedral is still going. It was built in 1130, you know, and there are older churches than that. And they are, they are increasingly not used for Christian worship. So, you know, the Christian God is dead. In Europe, you may regret that, but um, and maybe there's a revival. I was listening to uh, what's his name, Paul Kingsworth, and he's become an Orthodox Christian. He's just a young guy, an environmentalist, and there is maybe some kind of revival going to happen because it has happened in the past, of course. But um, I don't know at the moment whether it is going to revive. So, and I think what, uh, and this is in '26, the first war has happened. The second war, the Second World War, hasn't happened. Um, it is obvious with modernism coming in that the death of God amongst the intelligentsia is is being felt. And I think this is what this is about. The, the sea. There's one guy um, done a review, read some reviews on it, saying this is about global warming. I don't, they'd never even come across global warming then. They didn't know what it was. So I think that is uh, us importing our views onto what De La Mer was saying. And I think De La Mer is saying that... Um, um, the devil, the adversary, is taking over this Christian building. There's no congregation. There's just this old man who's on the edge of death, and he is ridiculed. So the 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 experts come, and it's due to a haunting. It's a spiritual thing that's happening to the church. But they, with their modernist views, um, run away with their tails between their legs because modernism cannot explain what's happening in the cathedral because it's a spiritual thing that's happening. And the old man is on his last legs, and he is um, uh, the only one to believe. And he tells the he tells this stranger, the stranger, he's able to speak to the stranger because the stranger comes with no presuppositions. And so he, and he can believe that. He can believe him. And I think at the very end, jumping to the very end, uh, very interestingly, his daughter's a widow. Mm, so the, I don't know what that's about. But um, the child, the boy child is there, which, which heralds a rebirth, this beautiful boy child, and I suppose the thing at the end, the cathedral had forgotten to wind its clock, is that the time, in a sense, is immaterial to the cathedral. It's not as important to, to us. And remember, it starts at the very beginning when he's talking about the ringing of, a, of, of the bell of the, the hours. So that's something to do with that. But the child seems to me a symbol of a new beginning. You know, we have killed God. The cathedral is dying. The sea is gobbling it up. The sea, of course, is the unconscious uh, and it's coming to take it back. So, so the cathedral is a human edifice, and the sea, nature, is it's, it's almost like a natural cycle. It's going to take it back, but nature has given birth again to this boy, and so so something will come. And, and I think that's true. I think we're living in a time of great turmoil. Um, we've lost a lot of our traditional things that have underpinned us. I mean, you, you could argue that potentially every age has felt that, you know, the Enlightenment and... Uh, every age, we just didn't live in it. We don't live in it, so we're not familiar with it. But um, you could argue that there's always been a crisis of some kind 
We just we seem to be living through one at the moment, a crisis of our civilization. I've recently been thinking about the end of the Roman Empire um, and how that believed it was going to go on forever and then collapsed. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not keen on drawing um, out parallels on that, really. But um, certainly this is what this is about, I think. And, of course, it's, therefore it makes no... You know, the devil is sneering. The devil is a mechanical god. And I think when you get people like Tolkien as well, um, he very much was of this view that uh, the modern world is a me mechanical view. It is the spirit of the air that's in it. It's a, it's a, a quick-thinking electrical. There's an electrical storm on the horizon at the end. It is, it is the machine age, the mechanical age, the non-organic age that's coming that's, that's not dead. I mean, I think one, one, of the, one other view of modern society is that we are disenchanted, that the world has become meaningless like... Um, a vast machine that has no purpose and just runs by, and it's not alive and we, it's no longer ensouled. I don't think that's what uh, Delamere's saying. He's saying that there is, a, there is a spiritual takeover going. He's not particularly keen about it. And, of course, there's a the sound of metal and some kind of metalworking going on, which ties in with this idea that... And, of course, he, he is a romantic, you know, read his stuff. He hankers back to the dreams and reverie and... Um, the night and all of that kind of thing. So that's what appeals to him. So that's what I think All Hallows is about. It is a story about changing our society from our Christian past to some kind of mechanistic future, which he is broadly pessimistic about. But I think at the end, the birth of the child indicates that, you know, although we can't clearly see, because we never, when we see a child, we don't know its potential. We can only hope and pray um, that it will be good. And, but I think there's every sign that it will be good. Um, and, and when we're living through these times, we don't know what the future holds, but we have to hope and pray. And, and, and I kind of lay some emphasis on, on prayer. You probably know that I'm, I have a... I'm, I don't particularly ascribe to this machine, purposeless machine. I think that the world is ensouled, that um, there is a... That, that, yeah, that um, t there are spirits in the world. Um, and I'm, I'm not um, particularly Christian, although I am. There's certain things about Christianity that um, I think are very valuable. Anyway, there we are. It's funny, um, I was listening to something about, you know, you can be so diplomatic and you can kind of try not to offend people. And you're going to lose people anyway. Absolutely, you're going to. I, I had a, some kind of guy making comments. Buddha coup, he was called, and he was stop stop posting anti-Western and no, I don't know if he said anti anti-Christian, anti-white, anti-men stories. I'm like, I, I wasn't sure that I did. And then he was quite profane in his language, calling me a whining bitch and. Uh, F me and all my channels. And I'm like, what? And then I, and I kind of thought, well, I'm going to look into this guy. He's called, he's, he's got like, don't, anti-Christian, his, his thing is Buddha. I'm like, this doesn't ring true. Peace upon the Buddha as well. But, you know, this does not ring true. This sounds like one of them trolls who just goes causing trouble. And then he's put comments about how Putin is the man. I'm like, yeah, we know you're working for, mate. You're working for the Stalinists. So, um, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of totalitarian regimes. You know, Putin is not a, not a good man. So this guy, he was a, he's a troll, really. And I thought, well, actually, I'm quite touched 
uh, and chuffed that um, the 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 Russian troll farms have found my little corner of the internet and have found it worthy of spitting their bile upon it. Yeah, no. So I tie my I tie my flag to Western civilization and traditions of tolerance and free speech and democracy and and all of that stuff. And the truth of it is. As our ancestors found, you have to fight for this uh, or else there's plenty of people who roll it over. But it's worth having and uh, and our cultural and historical traditions are worth protecting. So there we are. And with that, on that controversial note, it's not controversial unless you're a plonker. Rock and roll. Anyway, I don't know. I was interrupted by the dog. I'm going to play a little bit of my conversation with Ruby just so she can see the kind of stuff I've had to put up with. Ruby, stop it. Ruby, you don't even want the bone. Leave your brother alone. <laughs> Leave me alone as well. <laughs> you silly dog. <laughs> invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy of supporting my work which enables me to do more work imagine that you pay me to do more and i do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is and, and you know i appreciate it so you get my love and gratitude and also you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.